Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Betsy Timboom, Promise of God by Mike Evans with permission from Time Worthy Book and we are on chapter 36 and we're going to find out what happened to the babies. We never knew where the babies went, but Kick, who was involved with William in placing them, assured us that most of them made it safely out of the country and those who stayed were hidden with good families. We never saw or heard from them again. We didn't see the SS soldiers again either, but the scare of having them show up unannounced at the shop turned our attention to installation of a buzzer system to warn of danger. Our guests were neither quick nor agile and needed as much time as possible in order to reach the secret room without being discovered. If the soldiers who came that day had been serious about searching the house, we would have been in trouble. Lindart knew something about electricity and offered to install a simple system, a centrally located buzzer with small buttons mounted discreetly around the house. I agreed for him to do it, and the day after I visited with Father Anderson, we began assembling the pieces necessary to make it happen. We found wires and screws in the shop, which meant all we needed was a buzzer and a few button switches. I dispatched Hendrick to find them. Several hours later, he came back with a half a dozen switches and a buzzer. No one asked where or how he procured them. By morning, Lindart had the system installed and working. Over the next month, we conducted drills for getting Meyer and the others out of sight and making the house appear as though only three people lived there. Perfecting that was difficult and took a careful observation. During several of the early drills, everyone made it to the secret room quickly enough but Corey and I failed to notice an extra plate at the table. A man's jacket, much too large for Papa, left lying on a chair, and other similar telltale signs that might indicate additional people were present in the house. Corey had a particularly difficulty with the late-night drills. She was a heavy sleeper. When we awakened her from a deep sleep and peppered her with questions, she often said too much. Eventually, we reduced our response time to less than four minutes, but that was still slower than many thought acceptable. One night after supper, after weeks of practice, I finally said, we'll just have to rely on stalling them to build in some extra time. After we rescued the babies from the orphanage, daily life at the Bayer once again settled into a rhythm of eat, work, relax, sleep, and do it over again the next day, a cycle that was interrupted only by the occasional hiding drill and one or two panicked alerts. At night, electrical blackouts became a regular occurrence with the power typically shut off around six in the evening. We burned candles for light and many times simply sat in the dark and talked until bedtime. Both Corey and I played the piano well enough to do it without seeing the keys, and we sometimes played from memory while everyone sang along. People continued to arrive at our door after curfew, and we continued to place them but finding new locations was increasingly difficult. By then, our network, already large and unwielding, had become a sprawling collection of friends, couriers and contacts that reached beyond the Netherlands borders. It was exceedingly useful in providing people a safe place to live, but much too large. I worried to go unnoticed, and I was becoming concerned about the number of people living in the house with us. At mealtime, we had 12 people wedged in place around the table. As those extra people grew accustomed to their surroundings, 
They became more lax about noise and casual about being seen during the day. All that caused me great concern. As events would prove, my anxiety was well-founded. During Christmas of 1943, we celebrated Hanukkah for our Jewish guests by singing traditional Hebrew songs. One night, the singing became particularly enthusiastic, and a neighbor appeared at our door to complain about the noise. Tell your Jews to be quiet, she fussed. We can hear them right through the wall. That's when I realized we were in trouble. After she had gone, I looked over at Corey. A policeman, a squad of German soldiers, Kick, his friends and the neighbors, and most of the Jews remaining in the city know what we're doing. Apparently, Corey said with a sardonic smile, our secret work is the worst kept secret in the city, and I don't see any way to change things. We can't send our people away. No, we can't. We had other residents who were difficult to place, and after staying with us for an extended period, we found people willing to take them. Most of them were evidently discovered, which led to imprisonment for them and for their hosts as well. Sending Maya or any others to live somewhere else to us would be the same as handing them over to the Germans. They'd gone undetected at the Bayet far longer than any others simply by staying elsewhere. But we ought to try at least to limit our exposure. Corey had an amused look. Do you really think that's possible? No, I chuckled. I think as soon as the doorbell rings, we forget the risk and all we can do is help whoever asks. I think that's the way it should be, she replied. Corey had come a long way from the simpling girl of 14 who fell madly in love with everyone she met. We'd had our difficulties even more so than most sisters I've known, but she was an unusually talented and energetic person. Once God got a hold of her heart, that talent and energy became focused on singular purposes. In the process, she became a wonderfully balanced woman, grounded in a firm, genuine, personal faith in God. I loved her when she was a child, and I especially loved her as an adult. As there wasn't enough activity at the house already, William got the idea of conducting a Bible study structured around the scriptural notion of praying for the peace of Jerusalem. By extension, he suggested David's call in the Psalms for prayers on behalf of the Holy City should be viewed in our contemporary content as a call for concerted prayer on behalf of the Jews living under German occupation. It was a renewal of sorts of our great-grandfather's commitment. We continued to pray for Jerusalem each morning after breakfast when Papa concluded reading the day's scripture lesson. William wanted to conduct a series of meetings that included Dutch believers beyond our household. We were all in favor of him doing it, and they began a meeting in the parlor each Wednesday morning. Those gatherings were an instant success. Almost immediately, attendance grew to include dozens. More people than ever were coming and going from our house. In January, Rolf, the policeman from the station just up the street, came to the shop, supposedly to inquire about a problem with his watch. Another customer was present when he arrived, and he loitered near the display case until she was gone. After she left, he asked about me, and Corey brought me down from the second floor. We stood near the rear staircase and talked. He had a worried look. The Jewish council has been asked to provide another round of names of non-Jewish sympathizers. You know this for a fact? Isaac Franken, one of the council members from Amsterdam, was in the police station talking to the Germans. That can't be good, I sighed. Your neighbor from across the street was there, too. Cornelius Musser was there with Isaac Franken? 
Ralph nodded. Yes, and they were all in the meeting together, talking with the Germans about people they suspect are involved in helping the Jews hide and escape. Corey came from the shop and joined us. I knew Mussert was trouble. And that's not all, Ralph continued. The Germans, with at least some of the cooperation of the council, have been sending out informants. Many of them are Jews. Others are Dutchmen posing as Jews or Jewish sympathizers. They claim to be in need and ask for help. Gain entry, learn incriminating details. Relay that information back to the Germans. Their effort had already netted dozens of arrests. And even right now, Gestapo agents are on their way to a house of Ed. Corey's eyes wide in a look of concern. We must warn them. Who is it? We can tell them. For an instant, I saw something in Ralph's eyes that told me he hadn't previously known that our telephone was working. I wasn't sure I liked what I saw, but the moment passed as quickly as it came, and he said, there's nothing we can do about it now, and even if you could, they would know the information came from me. They're doing this with help from the council, I asked, trying to move the conversation forward. Yes, he replied. They have penetrated deeply into the Jewish and Christian communities. Almost every non-Jewish organization that's trying to help has been compromised. Corey shook her head in disgust. Why would the council cooperate like this? Trying to stay alive, I replied. I think if some of them have trouble believing the stories they hear about what the Jews are doing, Ralph offered. People like Isaac Franken, I added, think they can outlast the war. Ralph Turn to leave. Just be careful. If the council's informants have already been there, they will be soon. I walked with him to the door and said goodbye, and then turned to Corey. We knew Isaac Franken was going to be trouble. He's giving up his own people just to outlast the war. Might make it too, Papa said, from his place behind the desk. Well, I sighed. If they're making up lists of Dutch sympathizers, we're on it. And I am thankful to God to be counted among the faithful, Papa said with a smile. Make sure you are too. Next week will be chapter 37. I love you. I'm praying for you. And bye-bye for now.